1: Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout
0: for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask Kiefer Sutherland's father what he thinks.
2: Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton. He's a little bit long-winded. He doesn't translate very well into our generation, and his jokes are terrible.
0: This episode, Milton's guest is comic book writer David Popoz. David is the writer of many acclaimed series, including Going to the Chapel and
1: Spencer & Locke. David's currently crowdfunding his next project, The OZ, now on Kickstarter. Streets that once were paved in gold have rusted. No rubies on the horse's bridle now. All the
0: windows on the emerald spires busted
1: songs of laughter echoing through town
2: Hello, David. Thank you for coming on to the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Uh, excited to be here. and Excited to catch up with you about uh, my new book on Kickstarter, The O.Z. Please, just jump right in and tell us what is The O.Z. Sure. Uh, the O.Z. is like what if Mad Max and the Hurt Locker took place in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, we've recontextualized Dorothy Gale killing the Wicked Witch of the West as something like a botched regime change. And so when she clicked her heels together and went back to Kansas, Dorothy inadvertently left Oz in a power vacuum that would lead to years of brutal civil war. So our story picks up a generation later with Dorothy's granddaughter and namesake, who happens to be a disillusioned Iraq war veteran. Uh, She's come back home with some real trauma, some real guilt, and some real scars. And she's just trying to put the pieces of her life back together. Uh, Unfortunately, when a tornado strikes her small town in Kansas, uh, Dorothy finds herself trapped in the war-torn land of Oz. So she's really going to have to confront her past and her grandmother's legacy, not to mention navigate her grandmother's former friends, if she hopes to survive the Occupied Zone, or as the locals call it, the O.Z.
2: I have to say, this is a fantastic pitch. It's one of those pitches that... It's just a glee to hear, um, and it's one of the it's one of those ones where like, you know, um, I, you know I've had a lot of friends in comics do fantastic projects that don't necessarily ha- lend themselves well to a quick pitch. You have to kind sure. of dive in and immerse yourself in the world. Whereas this is one of those ones that I'm sold, you know, immediately on the the one sentence pitch, and that makes me curious. Can you remember? Um, in hyper detail, how you came up with the premise.
0: Yeah, uh, no, I I can remember it fairly in in, in a decent amount of detail. You know, the OZ has been in the works for a long time. Um, We're actually coming up on the three-year anniversary of when I first came up with the idea. So, um, you know, that's something I always like to tell people who are are, uh, getting their feet wet in comics or or aspiring, is that uh, success is not really measured in weeks or months. It's measured in years. And um, so I came up with this idea shortly in the aftermath of uh, the first volume of Spencer and Locke coming out, which is is a book that while I'm really pleased with how uh, universally uh, accepted that book has been, that was not nearly a sure thing in the process. Um, you know, I thought for there was there was a significant chance I might get run out of the industry with that book, and so uh, the fact that people really liked it and really responded to it, I kind of gave myself permission at that point to maybe making a go for this uh, comics writing thing. And so I, I had three ideas that I came up with kind of in rapid succession. Uh, There's Spencer and Locke 2, which i had had in my back pocket uh, from the jump. Uh, going to the chapel, uh, you know, I was, I was the world's worst best man at my oldest friend's wedding. And um, lastly, uh, the O.Z. And that came up with, uh, with that because I had said I was working on crime, I was working on romance, I, I wanted a big swing. And I thought sci-fi and fantasy are kind of the, some of the biggest swings you got. And so um, I thought, you know, kind of what's what's my Star Wars here? What's my big my big pitch? The problem is, is sci-fi is tough. Um, it's not to say like I've written sci-fi since then, but like it's challenging. Um, you know, you got to come up with kind of hard and fast rules for the world, and then your characters have to navigate them. Fantasy it's the opposite. Um, you know, the the world kind of gets molded by the metaphor and the characters. You know. Um, it, the, the there are no rules or, or the rules can, can really kind of illuminate uh, uh, your character qualities. So I, I, I've i liked fantasy for a long time and I wound up writing what was kind of like a mood board, um, you know, things like uh, uh, Lord of the Rings or Lloyd Alexander or Piers Anthony or Harry Potter. Uh, and I wrote the Wizard of Oz in that, in that mood board. And as my cursor was flashing in the word Oz, I thought, Oh, you know, that's, it's really short, uh, but it's really, Uh, iconic, you know, what if that was an acronym for something? And I thought of the book DMZ and I thought, oh, it's the occupied zone. And that's when it kind of really hit me like a ton of bricks that, oh, I'm not just working on a fantasy book. This is a war story. And um, really kind of, you know, that image, which uh, artist Ruben Rojas channeled so eerily well of Dorothy kind of giving us this haunted look as a, as a soldier. And the tin man standing behind her is this sort of, uh, reconfigured uh, war machine uh, that really stuck with me and 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 really kind of pushed me to pursue this book, even when we had a, a lot of twists and turns along the way.
2: That's fantastic, and th- the image you refer to is immediately evocative and gives you almost everything you need to know about the pitch just in that one image. And I'm curious, um, how did you end up finding Ruben Rojas and approaching him with this project?
0: Yeah. Um, I found Ruben uh, on Twitter actually uh, a few years back. I I saw him answering a call for artists and I was just shocked that not only had he not been picked up, but that he wasn't a superstar uh, because he's got a style that's very much uh, like Dan Mora by way of Sean Murphy um, you know, he's he's got these really kinetic action sequences, but he's able to turn on a dime with these very expressive character moments. Uh and he's truly one of the most gifted designers I've ever worked with. Um, you know, he, he adds so much detail and character to all of our settings and all the characters that reside there. Um so I actually I pitched Ruben um with three different books. Um I I, I knew I wanted to work with Ruben. Um and so I pitched him the OZ, I pitched him uh, Grand Theft Astro, which had then not been acquired. Um, and then a third project that I, I'm, I'm kind of putting back on the back burner for, for redevelopment. And Ruben, as a fan of fantasy and post-apocalyptic uh, uh, storytelling, uh, the OZ really kind of hit him right in that sweet spot. And um, yeah, he's, he's terrific. Um, you know, he's, he's a guy who you, you probably haven't heard of, but I, I think that's going to be changing soon. Um, you know, he's just so talented. Uh, he really, um, as, as somebody who has worked as both a writer and an editor, usually I'm kind of used to having to kind of troubleshoot books on the fly and really kind of fix problems in the thumbnail or layout stages um, you know, before we get too far along into, into, the, into the story. But uh, Ruben, no, he's, you know, he does not really need his hand held. Um, and, you know, he just hits the ground running with every single page. It's, it's, it's really impressive. That's amazing. That's
2: amazing. And I, I have, uh, I have used the same method. Um, I think, um, I think Nate from boom puts out a lot of Twitter, um, calls looking for artists. And whenever he does that, I, I go through the replies and take note mm-hmm. of people. And, sure. uh, that's, uh, it's fantastic that you, you linked up with him that way. Yeah. Um, because he seems, destined for this project because it's it, the, the the initial previews that we've seen it seems like the perfect marriage of artist tone and
0: yeah material absolutely
2: so I am a little bit curious, given the fact that um, you, you know what I did have a question for you, but I'm gonna I'm gonna pause that question because something you said earlier raised my eyebrows. What what did you mean when you said you were worried about getting run out of
0: the comics industry with Spencer and Locke? Spencer and Locke is a great book. What, well, where where was your hesitation there? Well, you know it's 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 a pretty combustible high concept. Um, you know, what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? Um, you know, it's it's something that you know we we remixed, um, you know, one of comics' most beloved uh, strips uh, for good reason. You know, Bill Watterson is a pioneer and a a, a visionary. And on top of that, you know, we dealt with things like mental illness and child abuse. Um, You know, there are definitely scenes that we had to kind of draw and redraw and redraw just to make sure that we weren't, that we never played it as a punchline or, or romanticized anything or made it titillating. Um, or funny, you know, it was really just, you know, making sure that people knew like, Oh, these moments are horrible, but also doing it in a way that didn't alienate people. So, you know, I, I, I kind of knew going in, there was going to be a ratio of people who got what we were doing and really liked it. And then there were going to be people who just didn't like it out of principle, just for the sheer fact that it existed. And, uh, I just didn't know what that ratio was going to be. Thankfully, you know, like 99.999% of people who have read that book have been really positive about it. But, you know, there are certainly a handful of people, um, you know, a a very small group that just didn't like the book that, you know, they just didn't like that it existed. And that's totally fine. But, you know, I'm sure there's a parallel universe out there where it was exactly the opposite. And I would have stopped writing comics. Um, You know, I, I think with my first book, especially with a book like that, you can't do it quietly. Um, you know that's a kind of concept that everybody's gonna look just to see if this is you're gonna stick the lander or if this is gonna be a car accident and thankfully I was I was really fortunate that to work with somebody like Jorge Santiago jr um, that we were able to kind of really walk that 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 tight rope and uh, make it to the other side
2: yeah yeah the 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 handling of all the tones there uh, now that you mention it uh, I I should have realized that it probably required a lot more sensitivity and adeptness than, than
0: I, than I,
2: it worked. So
0: we ag, we agonized over a lot. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it worked, but boy, boy, were we sweating bullets uh, on, on the way there <laughs> in retrospect, it, it feels like a slam dunk, but in the process it's, it, it was anything but.
2: So, the given the, the fact that the ratio did turn out thankfully to be more on the, uh, on the positive side and also the success of going to the chapel. Um, I was a little bit curious about your choice to take this project to Kickstarter instead sure. of to a publisher. So I'm a little bit curious. Uh, um, maybe it's because the
0: sequencing of the
2: timing is different. Um, wh- what led you to make that choice?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I'd been looking at Kickstarter for a long time. Uh, You know, I'm friends with people like Charlie Stickney, uh, uh, creator of White Ash, uh, who I consider to be kind of the original uh, comics Kickstarter success story. Uh, My buddy, Rylan Grant, just wrapped up his Kickstarter for a book called The Jump. I'm friends with Russell Nahalty, who has a laundry list of Kickstarter projects, including Ichabod Jones and Cthulhu's Hard to Spell, Uh, Pat Chand uh, from Destiny, New York, um, and there's 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 a whole group of la comics creators uh who i'm friendly with who have all had success on kickstarter so i've I, people have been kind of press ganging me since uh, end of last year saying you know you should really think about doing kickstarter you should really think about doing kickstarter and um this is this was either this was either charlie or russell and i i apologize for not having my attributions correct um but uh I think it was Charlie who said, you know, there are certain people that buy their books at comic shops and certain people that buy their books off uh, Amazon or Comixology and certain people who buy their books at cons. And there stands to reason that there are people who primarily buy their books on Kickstarter. And I kind of realized, oh, there's a whole demographic that I did, have been doing no outreach to. And so I, I was like, OK, I, I really need to fix that. Meanwhile, the OZ, uh, you know, we had two issues drawn in the can um you know the whole series is written already and the thing is you know we had spoken with traditional publishers and 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 we had a lot of very enthusiastic response but the acquisitions pipeline in traditional publishing can be chaotic at the best of times you know people's attentions get diverted other creators come in with other books um you know life happens and there are crises and fires that have to be put out uh i know there's one publisher we spoke with who they seemed really excited and we were really excited and they were like, "Okay, give us a bit. We'll we'll get you know we'll we'll circle right back," and then uh, we kind of repeated the exact conversation, you know, uh, a, a few months later. Um, was, you know, and we did that a couple of times. It's like Groundhog Day. Um, and so I think the thing that kind of made this from being a hypothetical into something actionable was uh, was was COVID. Um, the uh, the pandemic, you know, in particular the temporary shutdown at Diamond. I think a lot of people took stock in their plans and you know said we got to ch- try something new. And I realized at that moment I could solve one problem with another. Um, you know I could give the OZ a home uh, I could I could you know not have this book burn a hole in my pocket for one second longer. And on top of that, you know we could introduce ourselves to the Kickstarter community with our absolute a game. So it really was a win-win uh, you know by virtue of having written the OZ as uh, six single issues. Um, I realized that it broke nicely on a three act structure. So we could, uh, uh, you know, do three campaigns instead of six and save me a nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so, uh, yeah, I I feel like it's been very empowering for me as a creator, because now, you know, I knew about writing. Um, you know, having written a few books. And I knew about the project management side, having project managed a few books. And I knew about the publicity side, having worked in publicity and worked in comics journalism and having promoted my own books. But I didn't know anything about printing or production work or fulfillment or shipping. And now I do. And I feel like that was kind of the missing piece of the puzzle. Now I can be as self-sufficient as I need to be. Um, I don't need to wait for permission anymore. If I have a concept that I really like, and I feel really strongly about in a team that I'm confident in, we can go directly to the readers. And, you know, whether, you know, whether or not, you know, if, if there, if any of my books wind up getting a second life in the direct market, that's great. But I'm starting to realize that like, this is a, a, a pretty robust platform in and of itself. So um, yeah, I, I think that's sort of, uh, you know Kickstarter can be a really empowering place and uh, I, uh, I I definitely see myself uh, sticking around uh, with this platform for the long haul
2: That's amazing so I'm curious this this might be too early to ask you this question, but do you have a feel for you mentioned that you know the folks that seek out projects on Kickstarter uh, may be a different demographic than what you encounter at cons and at sure the Wednesday War- warrior shops do you, i don't know how to articulate this but the oz feels like a kickstarter friendly audience book just by looking sure. at it but I, I don't know how i can articulate any more details about that have you, now going through the process a little bit uh, what can what can you advise people who are in comics creation about mm-hmm. the differences between those demographics oh
0: it's it's i mean the demographics i'm not as sure i can is that i can speak between but i can tell you the marketplaces are very different um kickstarter is like a different planet with its own laws of physics that are very different than the direct market and i think a great way a great example of that is the fact that our campaign launched at the same day as scott snyder's now ordinarily that would be considered like a death blow you know if this was in the direct market if scott decided to drop pull Beyonce and drop a new image book on the same day that I was releasing a book, it would absolutely hurt us, um, you know, because shop owners have a limited amount of bandwidth and a limited amount of shelf space and they got to, they have to put down their hard earned money to take a risk on your book. So I get it. If a shop owner has to pick between the writer of Batman and the writer of Spencer and Locke, they're going to pick the writer of Batman because they have, they have bills to pay uh, on Kickstarter. However, it was probably the biggest windfall we could have gotten. There were so many people that joined the platform that day on the strength of Scott's work on Batman and justice league that uh, you know, and Kickstarter's whole uh, uh, business model is they want to keep you in the ecosystem. So if you, if you ordered Noctara, they're going to say, Oh, Hey, by the way, there's another, another comic that just came out. You should check it out. It's called the OZ. So, you know, Scott is, is, is I think sniffing at $150,000 and I consider that $150,000 commercial. Um, I couldn't pay for that kind of publicity. And, <laughs> Um, but I think in Kickstarter, you know, a rising tide really floats all boats. And so I think, you know, well, I think I I came to it at a distinct advantage because I had a track record over three separate books and I had built a readership over the years, whether it was through my books or at conventions and, and, and through interviews. But, um, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of Kickstarter is that you're always going to be coming up with a certain class. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, I, f- I feel like there's gonna be, you know, you can promote your friend's work and your friends can promote you. And I think you can, you know, even if you don't know your fellow creators that you're doing Kickstarter alongside, you can, that's what social media is for. Um, and so I think, you know, that signal boosting really helps. And it's sort of, it you know, there are people who are really hungry for content. Um, And you know, while while I've heard speculation of, oh, well, you know, like unemployment is wrapped up, and you know, people are not sure what they want to do, I would counter that nobody's going to restaurants anymore, nobody's going to the movies anymore. Um, You'd be surprised that there's still a bit of discretionary income uh, when it comes to entertainment. And yeah, I think Kickstarter, you know, it's it's a great equalizer. You know, you don't need to know where your local comic shop is. You don't need to know, you know. You don't, you don't have to have a, an encyclopedic knowledge of a particular creator or title. Uh, all you need is your laptop. Uh, most people kind of know what Kickstarter is, and I think it's becoming more and more prevalent. And I think in the industry, for sure, I think Scott dipping his toe in the pool, I think that's, that's going to break the dam in a big way. I think a lot of direct market creators now are going to start thinking, hey, you know, with the direct market being as chaotic and unpredictable as it is right now, maybe we should be reaching out to this other demographic instead.
2: Interesting. Interesting. So you mentioned that you approached this, you know, it's almost like uh, you've got a pie chart with a lot of the pies filled in with your experience in various aspects of comics creation and marketing and so forth, but you had some gaps and that this this experience has helped you to fill in some of those gaps. And uh, you, you mentioned printing. That might not be the thing that you could speak most to, but it, it, are there one or two lessons that Kickstarter, this Kickstarter specifically has taught you um, and how did you learn it and what, what can you advise people
0: from that? Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, and, and, and this is kind of the definition of a champagne problem, but um, you know, my, the big challenge that I've had is I went into this Kickstarter uh, two weeks ago and my thought was, okay, how do we get funded in 30 days? You know, what are the stops that I need to pull out? Are there any sort of incentives that I need to, you know, pull out there to sort of get across the finish line? Um, then we got across the finish line super, super, super fast, and so suddenly the game kind of changed because we still wanted to invite more people to the table, we still wanted to draw as big of a readership as possible, um, but at the same time, we certainly didn't want this to look like a cash grab. Um, and so, uh, what I what I needed to do was figure out, you know, there are ways to enhance the book, um, the book itself. So we're adding in pinups, for example. Um, uh, We're talking with our printer now about enhanced covers, um, things that we could fit in our existing shipping infrastructure. Uh, You know, we're sending our our stuff primarily with Gemini mailers. So what can fit in there without messing up the books and without messing up the shipping? Things like uh, our our comic-sized print from Kira Okamoto. Or uh, stickers, um, you know, our Flying Monkey Squadron sticker. Um, Things we could distribute digitally, like our digital comics extravaganza. um, Or the fact that we had a song recorded, a theme song recorded for the book. So, um, yeah, it's definitely been a little bit, you you know, of creative thinking. Because you want to do it in a way that doesn't slow down the actual book. you you don't want to delay that and you don't want to, you know, I think that's kind of the, the, the deadly sin of hubris that certain Kickstarter campaigns do is that they go wild with the bonus stuff and not realizing like, Oh, that's going to kill your shipping. Um, and suddenly they, you know, they burn through any, any money that they've got for me. I don't see this as, Oh man, we've made a lot of money. I see it as, okay, we're, we're able to fund the rest of the series. Um, but it's not like I'm I'm not lining my pockets on this book. Um, you know, this is a, this was written as a six issue mini at 140 pages uh, plus covers, so you know plus printing. Um, so trust me, that money goes fast. Um, yes. And so, yeah, it's just been about you know kind of figuring out a way to keep readers engaged and to just keep showing them that like the more people join up, the more bang we're going to give you for your buck. So speaking of all
2: of those uh, uh, stretch goals and uh, alternate uh, perks and everything, uh, l- let me pitch you the, the most cliche and obvious variant cover idea. I'm sure you you may have even already announced this, but I've got to ask, are, are you going to ask Scotty Young to do a variant cover for this?
0: <laughs> I don't know if I can afford Scotty Young. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, Scotty and I seem to have a lot of shared interests because he's also a huge Calvin and Hobbes fan. Um, we have not met. Uh, it's something that I, 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 I need to correct at some point. Um, but, uh, at, at this, at this juncture no. um, you know, just cause like I said, the, the variant cover artists are is the exact same thing that you don't want to like explode your budget. Um, you know, because yeah, you get a, you get a couple guys like Scotty Young and, uh, suddenly, suddenly that, uh, that surplus you have is, is, is dipping into the red. So, um, yeah, you know, for me, though, I've always kind of been more interested in, like, who's the people that you've never heard of? Um, mm-hmm. You know, people like Ruben or people like uh, Kenneth Wagnon or people like Monhouse House, uh, who's just been brutally slept on, um, or Rio Burton. Um, you know, uh, that's always kind of more exciting for me. Um, and maybe that's my imposter syndrome talking, but I'm kind of like, you know, I-, I know what a Scotty Young Oz cover looks like.
2: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: You know, whereas somebody like Kenneth Wagner, um, you know, I, I've been familiar with his work for a while. I've been trying to get, I've been trying to collaborate with him on a project, and we just haven't been able to get the timing down. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I uh, it's, it's, it, you know, seeing what he did with his uh, hit and run cover, uh, boy, uh, you know, that's the stuff that really kind of uh, knocks me on my butt. Cool. Cool. Well, also in, in the, in the perk category, you, you mentioned
2: the fact that you commissioned a theme song and yeah. I think we're going to play a, a clip of it either in the intro or the outro. Um, it's a fantastic piece of work. How, how did that idea come across and how did, how did you make it happen?
0: Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, uh, with my first book, Spencer and Locke, uh, kind of one of the highlights of it all was, um, somebody did a, a rap review of our, um, uh, of our first issue. And oh, wow. that really, this was a genre. I'm going to have to look this yeah. up. Um, yeah. So I, you know, you, you can look it up on YouTube. It's still up. Uh, you know, I, I, I considered it like a bucket list item. I didn't know I had. And, um, <laughs> sort of when the initial shock wore off of, Oh man, we got funded like 300% the first day. I, uh, I was kind of like, okay, I got to pull some rabbits out of my hat, figuring out like ways to keep this going. And, um, My my buddy, George Marston, you know, he's one of my best friends. Uh, We've known each other for about a decade, uh, you know, just through the trenches of comics journalism. And um, he's also, you know, not only is he a comics guy, but he's also a musician. And so I kind of brought it up with him just being like, you know, would it be weird if I did a theme song for this? And he was like, actually, I've been thinking a lot about this book in particular. And if you want, I could take a crack at it and um you know it's helpful because you know George has known about the oz as long as i've known about the oz i mean he, you know he's been really kind of there since the jump um as long as i've been developing it and so um you know he 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 kind of knew the world i was building and i think he wrote these beautiful lyrics in like the span of an afternoon and he recorded the song um uh, with his sister um that week and uh yeah it really was just you know really just nailed it Um, really just beautiful and haunting and, um, yeah, so I think, you know, that's something I'd like to start doing for my, for my, uh, for my books. Uh, I, I know it's, it's, it's self-indulgent, but I, I, when I listen to music, it kind of helps me figure out the vibe and mood and imagery of, of what I'm writing. And so kind of having a song that then embodies the imagery that I've already written. Um, it's, it's, it's really cool.
2: Well, in this case, in particular, I think you know since the the movie has such purchase on our collective imagination, and you know so many of the songs of it are, are iconic. I think it's a natural extension of of the Oz to do something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just a yeah. It's just a cool way to think outside of the box, and it's another advantage of doing Kickstarter um, is that. I think even like the scrappiest indie publisher, like we would have had to jump through a lot of hoops to get that done. Um, And I feel like that's by doing it on Kickstarter, like we, you know, I just got to be like, Hey, do you want to do this? Okay, let's do it. Um, And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, it was, it it, it was pretty cool and and an opportunity. I'm not sure the next time I'll be able to do it, but it's, yeah, it's, it was, it was pretty fun. Cool. Cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's, it's a really great song. So everything we talked about the OZ thus far has been joyous and fun. Let me, let me bring the the mood down here and let's talk about something that's not fun. Um, whenever this idea did present itself to you, at some point the business side of, uh, Pepo's international must've clicked in and said, okay, wait a minute. We've got to do some legal research here. Just how much of a public domain property is Oz? What what do I need to do? So, how did that process go about?
0: Well, um, so thankfully, I mean, there's been so many different adaptations of Oz that it, 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 I've I've known for a long time that that the original L. Frank Baum novels were uh, in the public domain. Um, the The thing that did help me though um, was I uh, I remember having dinner with uh, Jeff Gerber um uh, uh, formerly of, of lion Forge and um you know he's he's been trained as a lawyer and uh you know he he gave me some <laughs> the advice I needed uh which is um the l Frank Baum novels are in public domain the Judy Garland film is not and so figuring out what was an invention for that you know like I couldn't use the ruby slippers for example um you know the, the in the in the original Baum novel they were uh, silver so, you know, that was kind of, the, the, those were sort of the big things just to keep an eye out on. Thankfully, you know, there, the Judy Garland film certainly did some sanitizing of the uh, L. Frank Baum uh, original, but mm-hmm. like, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of overlap. Um, so, you know, that was kind of, that was helpful for me because yeah, of course the Judy Garland film is what everybody knows. It's through cultural osmosis, um, but you kind of have to figure out like what's unique for that. Um, and what can you kind of work around that you're still safe legally? Um, yeah. you know, I, also like, I, thankfully this wasn't my first rodeo with this sort of thing, uh, having done Spencer and Locke, uh, which really tapped into, uh, that summer internship that I, I spent <laughs> in a law firm where I, I thought to myself, who, who's going to care about parity and fair use? And that wound up being huge for me. Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, I, it, it was it was one of those things that it pretty quickly I was just like okay we got something here like and because Oz is considered public domain, um, we've got a lot of wiggle room to deal with like it's very weird that while the film is not you've got twenty novels that are, and so you you, you got a lot of source material that you can work with.
2: That's that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I personally have a knack for getting myself into these territories. I've got a project in development right now that is a public domain property with an asterisk to it, and there's some complicating factors. It's not the same thing as like what you just described where there's a a clear delineation from one media to another, but it's kind of similar. It's something that's mostly public domain, but has elements that aren't public domain. So navigating that is pretty tricky. Yeah, um, for sure. So that's interesting. You've got that illustrative uh, example there. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about some of your other projects and, and get an update on where we are sure. on some of them. Um, I know that Spencer and Locke has a adaptation uh in the works in some capacity? What, what is the
0: status of that? Sure. Uh, there's not a whole lot I can talk about at, at, at this juncture. Um, you know, NDAs are, are <laughs> I kind of have, 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 my, my, my tongue tied a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, and also it's right now, you know, I'm, I'm based in LA um, you know, COVID is kind of, made everything in a holding pattern at the moment. Um, So, uh, you know, what I can say is, you know, the people we've been working with, it's very, it's very cool. It's very interesting. Um, I'm very excited. Um, You know, hopefully the pandemic will kind of get under control and then we can kind of start resuming stuff. Um, You know, that's it. It's Hollywood. So nothing's really a sure thing. I mean, it's the thing is, is coming from comics. We're so used to, it's, it's a very binary thing. It's either it got picked up or it didn't. Mm -hmm. And nobody's getting paid if it didn't get if it didn't get picked up. Um, whereas in in Hollywood, you know, for film and television, there are so many different hurdles that you have to jump, but each one is its own payday. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I know plenty of working screenwriters who live very comfortably, who nothing they've written has ever made it across the finish line, um, or if it has, they haven't been credited on it. So, um, yeah, that's the thing for Hollywood is, is, is there's so many hurdles that you have to go through and, you know, anything can scuttle a project at any stage of the game. It's pretty much until you're, until you've got a director, a cast and are in production. And even then, you know, you see what happened to new mutants. Um, I, I feel like, you know, hopefully not talking too much out of school, but you know, when we were, when we were optioned. I reached out to Anthony Johnston who, um, you know, his, his, his movie, uh, atomic blonde had recently come out. And, um, I asked him, I said, do you have any advice? And he's like, just enjoy the ride. Cause there's not a whole lot of control you have. Um, if you did have a lot of control, then you would be a filmmaker instead of a comics writer. Um, so, you know, you kind of, you just try to partner with people that you you can trust as best you can with uh, you know being respectful and staying true to the vision and the source material and you just kind of you know it is really like rolling the dice um you know as long as you sort of maintain integrity in the face of, of hollywood pressures then everything else you know you just kind of grit your teeth and and hope it works out for the best
2: yeah yeah are you at liberty to say whether the idea is aiming for Either TV or film, live action or animation.
0: I can't. I wish I could. Okay, no, no, not at yeah, all, not sorry. at all. I, I, yes, no. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I can. I can already see the uh, the sniper light on my <laughs> on my chest. Um, I but, uh, well, yes.
2: uh, well, Let, let your like, sniper know that. Uh, uh, it, it would it's work safe. In, in all four categories. So, yeah. uh, but anyway, so let's let's switch gears to going to the chapel. Is the trade for that out yet?
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, trade came out for that uh, about a month before uh, COVID shut everything down. So that is available. Um, uh, you can get it ordered through your local comic shop or Amazon or Comixology. But yes, uh, the the the, the chapel trade is a thing. Uh, we actually for the Oz we we have certain tiers that. Um, one of them is our, our, our print stockpile, and that has all three of my previous trades in addition to uh, uh, the the first issue of the OZ.
2: So um, I hope this isn't a tough question, but is it something you would consider a sequel for?
0: You know, I'd say never say never. I mean, it was a really hard book to write, um, you know, really challenging uh, because, you know, you got to kind of choreograph 16 people in one location. Mm-hmm. Uh it, it definitely chapel took me longer to hammer out an outline for that than any other book I've written. Um, so, you know, and it's also just kind of figuring out like the bandwidth. Um, you know, I would never want to do it without Gavin or Liz. Um, so it'd be kind of getting the stars to align with the schedules again. Um, never say never. I will say though, just, you know, having, having done sequels before and having, you know, I'm still working on Spencer and lock volume three, uh, kind of slowly, but surely chiseling away at it. Um, I think at this point, given my druthers, like if I had to choose between a sequel and starting something new, I would definitely pick something new. Um, just because, like, then you've kind of got that fun of exploration. Whereas sequels, um, it's, it's sort of double edged. You get to build upon what you've already written and the characters that you've come to know and love. But every choice you make paints you into the corner. Um, and so, you know, it sort of feels almost like you're dancing on the head of a pin a little bit. But, um, I, I have an idea of what, um, uh, the, the going to the chapel sequel would look like. Um, I, I, I have kind of a rough idea already in the back of my head. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's a never say never. It's more of a wait until my schedule clears more and then I can, then I can really give that an honest thought. Cool. Cool.
2: Well, I've got the exact same questions on Grand Theft Astro is, <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, Is the trade out and is there a sequel in the realm of possibility?
0: So, so, uh, so we're still, we're still working on it. Um, You know, we uh, book isn't out yet. Um, It's written. I've written the whole series. Uh, We're just finally getting our ducks in a row as far as the art is concerned. Um, Artist Jordi Perez had some really cool licensed work that popped up. Um, So now that he's kind of back in the saddle, he's, he's slowly starting to chisel away back at the art. Um, you know, the thing is, you know, the benefit of, of doing something with top cow is kind of as an image imprint is they're not like beaten down my door to be like, where is this? Like we have a deadline. Mm -hmm. It's more of like, we'll figure, we'll figure out the deadline based on like how fast your art team works. So, um, yeah, it's coming together. Nobody's more impatient for that book to come out than me. Um, I have already written it. Um, it's been in my rear view for a little while now. Um, but yeah, now that the art's starting to come together, really excited about it. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a process and that's always the toughest part for me as a writer. And I'm sure you feel the same way is that, you know, for us, the process is much faster. Um, you know, I, I can work on multiple projects simultaneously. I'm doing that right now. Um, and you know, I can, I can do it with only kind of a minimum amount of fatigue. If I tried to have my artists working on multiple projects at once, like they'd blow out their wrists. It'd be like a career render for them. That's assuming I didn't, you know, it didn't send them into a nervous breakdown. Um, so I, you know, it's, it could be challenging, you know, you, you, you have to be patient, you know, um, it, it has to be sustainable. So, uh, but yes, um, I can say book is written. Um, you know, art is starting to slowly but surely come in and, um, yeah, I'm hoping that, you know, once the, once, once the snowball starts picking up some momentum, uh, we'll have something to, 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 to share, uh, relatively soon.
2: Cool. Cool. So, um, my last batch of question here is, um, potentially unfair given how busy you are with the OD campaign, but we ask everybody this question, What's on your culture radar these days? What are you reading? What are you watching
0: that you recommend? Um, you know, last night I kind of un- uh, unwound a little bit. Um, I started watching uh, Cobra Kai. Uh, really enjoyed it. Um, I think I, I think I think I watched uh, five episodes last night while I was doing a lettering pass. Uh, on, on it's surprisingly screen. good, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Um, what else am I really digging? Um, you know, my reward to myself once this campaign is over is I'm going to play the Avengers game on, on PS4. Um, I, I I'm superstitious and I feel like video games uh, uh, for me are a reward when the work is done. Um, so I, I I refuse to play it until until the campaign is ended. Um, what else am I am I into right now? Um, I watched Predator 2 for the first time in the pandemic. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I actually like that a lot more than Predator One. Um, what else am I into right now? Um, yeah, you know it's it's tough because I will say um, you know having before the campaign started, my last my last week uh, before the campaign was also my last week at Newzerrama, and I was reading books all the time there. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it was just my job. and I'm glad that. I did make the decision to leave when I did uh, because I don't have one iota of extra bandwidth um, uh, than the work that I'm doing. Uh, I, 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 it would have really, it would have really burned me out in a major way to keep kind of being on the hamster wheel there. But it's been a little untethering. As I said to my, my pals at Quaintance uh, last week is that like, I have a whole stack of books that I need to read and haven't. Um, And it's just one of those things that like, I get it now. I get how it can kind of pile up. And, you know, if you're not sort of keeping in that week to week grind that it's easy to get left behind. Uh, you know, now I don't even care about X-Men spoilers on Twitter because none of it makes any sense to me. I have no contact. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm excited to kind of get back into the swing of things uh, uh, once the campaign ends. Um, but, uh, yeah, until then, you know, it's just sort of... <laughs> chip it away you know if there's if there's anything cool that pops up on my twitter feed i I try to give that a watch uh you know at at the end of the day uh but beyond that it's just uh keeping my nose to the grindstone a bit
2: well we thank you for it we uh we benefit from the story so i appreciate that and thank you so
0: much for coming on to the podcast my pleasure thanks so much for having me
1: streets that once were paved in gold are rusted No rubies on the horses bridle now All the windows on the emerald spires busted No songs of laughter echoing through town With the wanderlust of behind me broken promises of better days ahead I said